chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, and let's pray, and then we'll read this. Father, we come before you now. We do pray for your illumination. We pray for your help. We pray for your grace. We pray for your your kindness, Lord, to help to help me open the word, but to most importantly, to, to help your people and even those who are not your people to hear your word today, Lord. So we praise you for this opportunity to preach your word. We praise you for Christ. We pray that he would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. I'm sure that everyone here is more or less familiar with this. Let's read it, and then uh, by God's grace, we'll try to open it up a little. So verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And so, you know, the backdrop of this, I want to look at this first. So if you go to verse 1 of this chapter, what you're going to see here, first of all, is the providence of God getting them into Bethlehem in the first place. If you look at this in verse 1, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. So if you remember what's happening, you know, the, the uh, Mary has already been visited by angels. Joseph has already been visited by angels. And they know that, that Mary is with child and not only just any child, but with Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior of the world. And so they know this, but notice they're not in Bethlehem yet. And that's interesting if you think about why, because there's an obscure reference in Micah 5.2 that says that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Well, they're not in Bethlehem. And so the reason for that, I mean, who knows? They're, they're likely The likelihood is that they weren't familiar with that prophecy. And you remember a lot of times with the apostles and disciples, they, didn't, they weren't familiar with Christ fulfilling a certain prophecy until after he had died and been raised from the dead. And then they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he rode in into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's in the that's in the prophets. Right. And so it's kind of probably one of those things where they're not there. Otherwise, you would you would expect them to just go to Bethlehem and just wait it out and get ready to, to, to have this baby. But, of course, they don't. And there lies the problem, in a sense, because now when they go to Bethlehem, um, they're in a situation where they don't really have anywhere to go to have the baby. And so this is really God's providence. God, in his, in his timing and his perfect provision, he gets them to Bethlehem, knowing that the prophecy that is in Micah 5.2 says that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Remember King Herod, whenever the magicians come, they're looking for the, for the Messiah, um, not the magicians, the, the, uh, the wise men. They go to King Herod, and where does they take off, and then King Herod gets his, uh, his, his confidants, and he's saying, okay, where does the scripture say the Savior will be born, the Messiah will be born. They say Bethlehem, right? So it's in there, and they knew that, but it did take some searching. But you see God's 
providence here to get them into that place. And then, um, of course, in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. Now, remember, later in life, Christ is going to go back to that northern part of, of the area. And that's where Galilee is, is up in the north. And so um, when Christ is older, and actually after they move back from Egypt, that's where Christ will do um, spend most of his, his upbringing. Uh, so they went to the city of David, that's Bethlehem, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, which is also important, right, that Christ would come from the lineage of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And if you, like in my footnote, it says for manger, a feeding trough. Um, and that's that's always kind of a, a a debate, I guess, or a topic as far as what exactly would that look like. I think most of the time, you know, you usually see the the uh, the scenes where Christ is in this like really comfortable looking, very warm looking dwelling, and and you know he's in this really comfortable, very clean manger looking. That it's most the things that I've heard most uh, historians and scholars say is probably more like a cave. It was dingy. It was it was cold. It was, of course, you can imagine the, the manure everywhere. I mean, it's a place for animals. It's a feeding trough, right? So it's not romantic. And that's part of the, 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 the idea here when we get to the shepherd. So that's the backdrop. And now verse 8 in this passage, this is in, a, this is in, in Bethlehem. It's outside of Bethlehem. But notice, okay, in the same region, there was, there was some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Here's the thing about Christmas, right? So um, I, I remember hearing a sermon about five years ago by a guy who said that Christmas is about the wrath of God, right? And you're like, wait a minute. I've, I've never heard that before. I've heard a lot of things about Christmas, but not that it's about the wrath of God. And the illustration that, that this guy used was, uh, was Jonah in the whale. And so Jonah, whenever you remember when Jonah, he's told to go to Nineveh and prophesy against Nineveh. Well, he doesn't do that. He tries to run. He's in a boat and a big storm comes. And they're trying to figure out why the storm has come, and, and Jonah's down, and he's asleep underneath the, the boat there. And, uh, and they go, and they wake Jonah up, and they're like, hey, call out to your God, man, because we're in the midst of this storm, and, and, and we need to appease whatever God has offended. And so eventually, they draw straws, and they realize Jonah's the problem. Jonah's the reason why this storm has hit. And they're like, what'd you do? And he said, well, I've, God told me to go to Nineveh and prophesy, and, and, but I, I ran from God. And they're like, why would you do that? You know? And, and he says, well... Throw me into the sea. And at first they're like, no, we're not going to throw you into the sea. But when they realize they can't appease the wrath of God, eventually they throw him into the sea. And what happens when he's thrown into the sea? The storm is completely calm. The storm goes away. The sea is calm. Everyone is good. And what Jonah was doing, then he gets swallowed by the well, of course. But what that shows and what this guy was saying is that when Christ comes to earth, it was to appease the wrath of God towards sinners. Right. That was Christ's mission when he came to earth. And that's what Christmas, that's why he said that Christmas is about the wrath of God in the sense of Christ, because and, and, and I'll show you why. So not only. OK, so the angels go to the shepherds right now. That in itself tells us something. You know, it's, an, it's a if, if you think about of all the people that the angels could have gone to, um, you know, they could have gone to, I guess, Pharaoh in Egypt. They could have gone to Caesar in Rome. They could have gone to King Herod. They could have gone to. They could have gone to the high priest. They could have gone to the, another priest. You know, they could have gone to certainly somebody else besides shepherds. And not only do, do they go to shepherds, but it says here that they go to the shepherds at nighttime. Right. So it's, it's obscure. It's at night. It's to these really obscure and kind of um, these guys that are that are not like the, the top sphere of society. 
And, and that really is if, you know, I'm, we're all familiar with scripture in a sense. Um, but that really is the way that God always works. You know, in, in fact, I want to read uh, something from First Corinthians one. And this is this is Paul talking about the gospel. But we see here also this is this is just kind of the general principle that the pattern that God follows. In verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's more like the philosopher, the rhetorician, the the guy who knows his stuff. He says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's how God does, you know. Uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And at the very end, go to verse 25. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you can imagine, you know, it's amazing because so many times everybody to a certain extent thinks that in certain occasions they they know better than God. You know, it's almost like when something happens to us in our life, we think, hey, if it was me, that would not have happened. Like if I was the one controlling things, I would have done this instead of that. Well, in the same sense here, you know, if you, if you, if God, you know, asked us, Hey, so, so, so who should I send this, this message to that? I brought the Messiah into the world. Who should I go to first? You know, like what person we'd be like Caesar, Pharaoh, King Herod, somebody who's really powerful, who's in a palace, who has a lot of influence, go tell them first, but they don't do that, right? They go to the shepherds and, and there's a reason for that. Um, and part of the reason what we just mentioned, it's, it's so that God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. Okay. And we're, we're going to see this towards the end, but verse nine, you see what happens. They have the, the proper reaction here. Um, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. So that's the, that's the proper response. That's, that's, you know, there's another thing too. You know, a lot of times people think that when, if God were to appear in front of them, or if they were to appear before God, they would say this and they would say that. Well, the reality is, is when you read scripture, what you find is people, even in the presence of an angel, they're deeply terrified. An angel, not just God, right? Angels are created things. Angels, in fact, angels are lofty. They're majestic. They can't stand in the presence of God without covering their face and their feet because God is so holy. And they realize that even as angels. But when angels appear to us, we tremble and we're terrified. In fact, in Revelation, when John stands before, when an angel appears to John on two occasions, he bends the knee to worship the angel because the, he's so overwhelmed by the angel's majesty. And the angel has to say, no, John, I'm just I'm, I'm a creature like you. Don't worship me. Um, Daniel, whenever an angel appears to Daniel, he, he passes out. He collapses for several days. He's like he's wiped out. And so here you see that they do have the proper reaction here. You know, they're terribly frightened, as you can imagine, because all of a sudden it's like the, the, the celestial atmosphere just just breaks open. And and here they are. Um, So they're terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And this is the part I wanted to bring out as far as when we were talking about the wrath of God and Christmas being about the wrath of God and Jonah and things like that. See the reason, check this out. Okay. So do not be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And you see the repetition there, the emphasis there. It's not just great news or excuse me. It's not just good news. It's good news of great joy, right? It's not just good news of joy. It's good news of great joy. There's a lot of emphasis there. I was reading a commentary last night when Calvin was uh, emphasizing how, or yeah, he was emphasizing how emphatic that is. Like there is an extra punch in the original language of this being something. It's just not 
any kind of news here. Like there's an expression here. Now, when you actually start thinking about why this is, this is the point. The reason this is so glorious, there's two reasons. There's more than two reasons, but there's two primary reasons. Number one, this has been this has been prophesied, this moment in time. Can you imagine? I mean, think about, you know, whatever it looks like for the last generation on earth before Christ returns. That's a once in a, in a like, when you're talking about the whole history of humanity, there's only one generation in the whole history of humanity that'll be alive when Christ returns physically. And when it comes to Christ taking on flesh and, and, and the Messiah coming to earth, in the whole history of all humanity, there was only one generation where that happened, where Christ actually took on flesh and came to earth. There's only one, right? So it's, 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 it's marvelous. Not only is that, um, not only is there that, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. This is something that people have been anticipating for, for, for centuries, ever since really the days of Adam. Ever since Adam fell, and they've been longing with anticipation for this one who was going to come and crush the head of Satan. And Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. He says, as to this salvation, talking about Christ, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, you remember when Christ is on earth, Christ says, you know, Moses spoke of me, Abraham spoke about me, Isaiah speaks about him, Daniel, they all spoke about Christ. What this is saying, what Peter is saying, is that the prophets, look what they're doing in, in, um, in verse 10 again. They, they prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They made careful searches and inquiries. They were trying to figure out, okay, when is this going to happen? Who is the person going to be, right? Who is it? Who's no, uh, seeking to know what person? So they're trying to figure out, okay, who's the person going to be? What's, what's he going to look like? What's he going to do? And when is it going to happen? What, at what time period? You know, is it going to come in our generation? Is it 100 years from now? People do that with the end of the world all the time, you know? People are like, hey, I think it's going to be like 2030 at 9 a.m. Or 2000, you know, the, the year 2000. People have been whiffing on that forever. And I'm assuming perhaps it might have been something like that, but not what he's saying. The prophets didn't do that. The prophets were were... Because they had the spirit of Christ within them, they were sincerely trying to figure out when is this going to happen in a humble, genuine way. Um, and then verse 12, he says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, this generation. Now, we can also extend that to us because here we are still reading that. And there's plenty of passages that show this was not just for them. It was for us also. But his point, Peter is talking about, they were talking about. Um, the, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, so when it comes to the gospel, even, not even the angels knew how God was going to do this in a sense. You know, they probably had more insight than humans did, but they didn't even know like the full, re the full revelation, the full picture. I think I told you all about John Owen. When I was reading through John Owen and he talks about, you know, for, forever, the angels were trying to figure out how is God going to save these people who are sinful, who are rebellious and all these things. And then when they saw the second person of the Trinity stand up and say, I'm going to do it and take on flesh, he said the angels must have gasped, you know, and that's that's how they must have looked at it. Because you're thinking about of all the people who are going to do this, it's, it's going to be God. Um, Galatians chapter four, look at Galatians. Because this is a this is a pattern that you see in the scriptures where this is a this is a huge event. In fact, it's the most important event in, in human history. Um, Christ taking on flesh, God taking on flesh. 
So this is Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see how he says, but when the fullness of the time came, there was a certain point in time when God says, okay, now's the time, right? So all the way up until that time, it was not the fullness of time. It wasn't full yet. The time wasn't ready yet. But then at the precise moment in God's sovereignty and God's providence, he said, now's the time. Go. And Christ took on flesh. And here he is. And that's why, number one, this is um, good news. Going back to Luke chapter two, good news of great joy. Okay. Here's the other reason why, though. It goes along with what we just talked about, the wrath of God. Right. In order, the reason why this is good news of great joy is because. Before this, there is only, or without this, you could say, there is only bad news of um, horrendous peril. Bad news of, I mean, we have no hope at all. There's no hope. There's no point to life unless we're reconciled to God. There's absolutely no point. And so in a, in a, in a subjective, like personal sense, this is good news of great joy for us. Why? Because the wrath of God was upon us. It talks about that in Ephesians 2. It talks about that in John 3, 36, where it says, apart from Christ, the wrath of God remains on them, remained on us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, he's talking to the Ephesians, but he says, you know, you were as the others who were children of wrath, even as the rest. We were children of wrath, right? Now, when you're talking about God's wrath, we know that it's not like our wrath. It's not like God wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and just like arbitrarily starts throwing stuff around. His wrath is always directed towards sin because he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. We do the same thing. Even we as sinful creatures get upset whenever righteousness is violated. You know, somebody steals someone's car. They stole the cross out here at the church. You know, they, you know so they were telling us, and it's like, man, how? Well, that, that kind of makes you angry, right? Why? Well, I'm a sinful creature, but I still get upset. I get mad. I can get wrathful in a righteous way, ra- a righteous indignation. So God's wrath or his indignation is always, it's always righteous. It's always directed towards goodness because he loves goodness. He loves holiness. Therefore, he hates anything that is not good or holy. But that was us. You know, that's who we were. Um, and sin, our mothers conceive us. And there's a, a plethora of verses in the scriptures that talk about how evil we are apart from Christ, apart from having a new heart, new nature. And if we're realistic, we just look at our lives and see that, right? So there is the wrath of God hanging over our heads and not just hanging over our heads, but pressing down upon us apart from Christ coming to earth. So that's why it's good news of great joy. In fact, I mean, the, the, the emphasis is here is because there is no better news than this. And I know y'all know that. I know it's a cliche, you know. I find it very difficult. Christmas is very difficult to preach on because every, like I said last week, I think, you know, everybody's heard everything, you know, and you can say things and it's just like one ear out the other. Cause it's something you've always heard, you know, Christmas is the greatest gift is Christ. And you're like, yeah, I know. Right. I've heard it a thousand times, but think about it. the greatest gift really is Christ. The greatest gift is really it's salvation. Um, and verse 11, where he says, for today, the angel says, for today in the city of David, Bethlehem, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. A savior here is, it means a complete salvation, right? Christ here, he is, first of all, he's not a destroyer. Think about the good news of that, right? Christ could have been a destroyer, not a savior. He, if we got what we deserve, he would be a destroyer. We would be crushed. We would be destroyed. But the good news is that he came not to destroy us. 
not to call down lightning and thunder and floods upon us, but he came to save us. Now, um, you know, in, in the Christian life, there's a lot of paradoxes. And a paradox is something that seemingly might seem like a contradiction. It's, 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 it's typically not. Um, a, well, paradox is not. But, but I'll give you an example. So, so in Christianity, leaders, to be a leader, you, you have to be a servant, right? To be great, you have to be weak. Um, to live, you have to what? You have to die, right? In order to live, you have to die. Die to what? Die to yourself. Die to your sin. You have to live for Christ, right? Uh, to be wise, you must be a fool. We saw that. Foolish in the eyes of the world. You must be humble, okay? Um, and that's, there's a lot of paradoxes in Christianity. To, to be rich, you must be poor. If you want to be truly rich, then store up riches in heaven, right? Not on earth, because on earth the moth and the, the, the people come in and steal it, right? So, so there's contour, uh, paradoxes in Christianity. But here's the thing. When, when God takes on flesh, okay, th- this is a paradox, the God who created time comes into earth, and in a sense, he's subjected to time. Okay? Now, this is, you think about Christ, again, uh, two or three weeks ago, we talked out of Philippians 2, where Christ took on flesh. It doesn't mean that Christ stops being God or that he gives up any of his deity. He's still God, but he takes on flesh. So the Christ, the God through whom all things have been made, he makes time. Christ is Lord over time, but when he takes on flesh, he comes under time. He submits to time in a sense, right? Time is now um, something that he has to that he has to live under. Um, same thing with with um, even the fact that God is spirit. God is not someone you can see with your eyes. We saw that today in First Timothy six. We we're reading that God is immortal. He's invisible. You can't see God. Christ says God is a spirit. Well, when Christ takes on flesh, the God who is spirit takes on something that is not spirit, right? He's now material. He has a material body, flesh and blood like us. Um, the author of life. So the life itself originates from God. From, the, from, from God himself comes life, the life of all things. Well, when Christ, who is God, takes on flesh, the second person in the Trinity goes to the cross, and what does he do? He dies. So there are things here that you're like, now, here's the thing. There's also paradoxes here for us, okay? Great news or good news of great joy for us. Why? Because think about it, okay? We're bound by time, but now because of Christ, we live forever. We are people born in sin, but now because of Christ, we're sinless. Even today, man, if you're in Christ today, God sees you as sinless. He sees you as sinless. And I know that's something that's hard. I think it should, I think it's worth repeating several times. You know, like it doesn't matter if you're in Christ today, now, you don't want to go like antinomian where it's like, yeah, now that, that Christ, no, God no longer sees your sin, you know, the Catholics, man, they cannot, they don't know what to do with this. Because if you, you know, here's the thing, Christ today, God sees you today as robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees you as righteous as Christ himself today. And if the proper response to that, of course, is humiliation, right? It's humbling. You're thinking, man, this is, this is crazy. I, doesn't God know me? Yes, he knows you. That's, that's why Christ came to earth. When he went to the cross, he knew you better than you know yourself, right? He knew all the sins that you commit. He, know, he knew all the sins that you'll commit tomorrow and next week and next month, God willing. He knew all those. And he died for those if you're in Christ. He died for all of them. So you look back at your life and you're like, hey, whatever you've committed, whatever sin you've committed, guess what? Christ, when he goes to the cross, died for those sins if you're in Christ. Tomorrow, next year, all the sins that you'll commit, all the sins that'll be racked up against you already that you know, hey, yeah, you're going to commit. Christ died for those sins. 
And the Catholics are like, well, what would keep you living a holy life then? The fact that Christ died for all my sins, right? Gratitude, I want to live for Christ now. Christ gave his life for me. I want to give my life for him. A life for a life, right? Out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, because he was so good to me. I want to, I want to live for him now. Imperfectly, yes, but I, I, want to, I want to be holy as he is holy, right? I want to strive for that. But now that we're, here's the other thing, okay? So we are cursed by death. That's the result of sin. But now because of Christ, we'll never die. That's what Paul says. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's what the thief on the cross said. I want to be with you. Christ says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The moment you die as Christians, there's no death. For Christians, there is not death. There's no such thing as death. It's, it's, this is just a preparation you know, for, for life, for new life, for real life. So all these things happen because of what Christ does. So from the world's perspective, they look at this and they're saying, man, that's just, I just, it's too good to be true. I can't, I just, it's too good. And it is, it is too good, right? But it's not too good to be true, but it's certainly too good. It's certainly more than what we deserve. But anyways, this is why it's, it's, it's good news of great joy. Um, and then there's this too. Look what they say here in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And there's that thing again. You're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. If it was me, if I was the one doing this, I would robe Christ in this purple mantle, make sure he's born in a palace, make sure he's born, you know, somewhere that's very uh, uh, princely. Um, What's the kingly word? Regal? You know, something that's very, hey, it's like, it's out of this world. Christ came from out of this world. When he comes to earth, I expect him to be somewhere that is super abundant, you know, super, super, he's going to be filled with pomp, a lot of uh, chariots, a lot of noise, trumpets, are going to have parades, the whole nine yards. But he says, no, there, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in rags. That's what cloths are, rags. He's not in a palace. He's in a manger. He's in a feeding trough. Now, think about it from the shepherd's perspective. An angel comes and tells you God came to earth to save us from our sins, and you're like, okay, I'm going to the nearest city, and I'm going to I'm going to go to the governor's mansion or wherever. And I'm going to look for him. And he says, no, go to this cave and look for a baby in rags. This is a stumbling block. This will be a rock of offense, unless by God's grace you believe. Right? That's why Calvin was saying. I I mean, I think he's right on. This is why the angels tell them this. Like when you go and see this baby in rags, don't let it throw you off. You see that? Don't let this be a stumbling block. There's a message in this, in, in this, right? The message is what they tell us. And we'll look at the very end. We'll look to see who this was for. But that's the whole point is that this was for everybody. This was for the lowliest of the low. Christ, when he's born, we all know this story. You know, Christ, Christ didn't come um, wearing a robe, wearing a crown. He, was, he didn't come having money either. You know, let's be honest. His father was a carpenter. He wasn't of, of any kind of great, extraordinary lineage, although he did come from David. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't like just because you come from David, you, you live in a palace again. So, so there's nothing. This is why in Isaiah 53, it says there was, there was nothing in his appearance to make him look like he was this king or this, this God who came to earth. Unless you've been born again. So when they go to see this guy or the uh, Christ, the baby... He's saying, listen, don't be thrown off here, okay? This is a sign 
pointing to something in verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. So now all of a sudden, not just one angel, right? But the, the whole sky breaks out with these angels and they're praising God and they're saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Now, it's important here. A lot of times, if you remember in the scriptures, um, whenever you're talking about um, a sign or somebody giving testimony, you need two or three witnesses. And so there's something here behind that. So you do have an angel, but then you also have a multitude, a host of angels proclaiming the same thing that this angel's saying. So that gives validity to what the angel is saying. Not that you would need it, but in that context, it was probably important for them. You know, that's, it certainly sealed the deal. Okay, so now you have, but not only that, not, not only do you have them praising God. Here's the other thing, though. What exactly are they saying? They're saying glory to God in the highest. Okay, so if you think about redemption, what's the point of Christ coming to earth? He didn't have to. We know that. Christ didn't have to come to earth. But when he, when he does come to earth, this gives glory to God. You know, a lot of times with sin, we ask, why, why, why did God let sin come into the world? I mean, couldn't he have stopped sin way back in the garden? He could have stopped sin, right? Why does sin enter the world? So that you can have this moment right here when God enters into that same world to deliver his people from their sin, which in turn gives him glory increases his glory so god decrees sin yes he doesn't he's not the cause of sin he didn't create sin but when sin comes into the world god most definitely i would say he allows it he decrees it why because it brings him glory to turn and save his people from their sins it allows this moment to happen without sin you don't have this moment without sin we're not sitting here right now praising god we might i don't know what we'd be doing of course but you know there's this sense in which we if there was no sin, I'm going to heaven because I'm good enough. But now that there is sin, I'm going to heaven because God is good enough. God is great and so great that he came and he died for my sin. You see the difference here? If there's no sin, I'm like, hey, man, I've been living a righteous life from the time I was born till the time I die. Of course I'm going to heaven. But now because of sin, we look at our lives and we say, you know what? From the time I was born until this very moment, I have not stopped sinning. And yet I am going to heaven. Why? Because Christ, when he goes to the cross, he dies for my sin. So now what do I do? I live for him. I rejoice. I praise him. I don't deserve these gifts that he gives me, but he's given them to me because he's good. So glory to God in the highest, not glory to us because we're good enough. Glory to God in the highest because he's the one that does this. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased or well pleased, you might have. Um, on earth, peace. You know, now, now peace here is between each other. And if you think about your lives, I mean, I, you know, again, think about people. Um, it's, it's an ugly world out there right now. You know, as far as politically goes, as far as just the culture goes, everybody's at each other's throats, everybody's head. The idea here is, is when we've been born again, there should be peace amongst each other. There should be peace amongst us. And there is, right? There is to a, to a large extent. Now, in the best of churches like we have Paul dealing with, you're still going to have things come up. But that's why Paul is always stressing unity and patience and humility and seeing others as better than yourselves, right? So as Christians, Christ who came to earth did so for us. He died for us. So now we, amongst each other, die for each other, live for each other, right? So there should be peace amongst us um, and also not just amongst us, but peace between us and God. And not only peace between us and God, but peace within our own conscience, knowing that we're right with God. If you ever talk to a Roman Catholic, they don't have any peace. Y'all ever talk to a Roman Catholic about that? You ask them, can you be certain that you're going to heaven if you're to die right now? All they, they'll tell you, no, I can't be certain. I can't be certain. 
Why? Because I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I've done the right thing. I don't know if I won't do the wrong thing tomorrow right before I die. I, I, I don't have that peace. I hope so, they'll say. I'm trying, right? But there's no peace in their conscience. The gospel is about having peace in your conscience, knowing that you are right with God because of what God has done for us. And so peace among men with whom he is pleased. Okay, now now notice there as a side point, okay, not peace with everybody, right? But peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know, it's funny on those Christmas services, man, everybody and their mother, everybody goes to the Christmas services, everybody goes to Easter services. Y'all ever see that? Um, here's the thing, though. we Like, even in a nominal, it's weird. So how many people would say they're Christian in our culture? Like 60%, maybe 50%, you know, it's probably on the decline, right? Most people would say that. But then you're actually wondering, do all of those people really have peace with God? I hope so, right? But you, you have to ask yourself, if we're being honest, you don't really see the fruit. You're probably not, right? Let's just be honest. Probably not. So they don't have peace with God. They don't have this peace that we're talking about, which is tragic, you know, because Christmas is should be about worshiping God, worshiping Christ. Um, Christmas used to be a forbidden holiday among Protestants. I don't know if y'all do that back in the 1700s, 1600s, 1500s. It was, it was Roman Catholic, Christ Mass. So they looked at that, and that was like uh, Charles Spurgeon. You guys, if y'all like Spurgeon in the 1800s, they did not do anything like Christmas because in, those, in that day, Christmas was directly associated with Roman Catholicism. Now it's not. Now it's not as much. You know, you're not, in fact, if ever. It's just kind of like this general Christianized thing. So it's different, I would say. That's why I don't have too much trouble um, with most of that. But, you know, here's the thing, though, okay? My point here is this. When you're looking at what Christmas is about and what the season's about and everything else, we have to be honest with ourselves, right? That's what this is about. Are you right with God? Do you have peace with God? And be honest about it. Ask yourself, am I right with the Lord? Am I right with God? Okay, and so if you are right with God, guess what? We can sing with these angels, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And then in verse 15, and this is just kind of to summarize, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, what do they say? Like, that was that was weird. Let's go back to work. You know, like, what was that about? I'm out of here, man. I, we must have eaten something, right? No, they said, what, what, let's, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They believe it. It's sealed, right? They're like, yes, I believe this. Let's 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 act on this now. And that's my point, right? If we're in Christ, we should act on that. If we're in Christ, there should be a response. There should be something about it. Remember the the uh, the demoniac? He was he was he was insane. You know, he's cutting himself with 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 rocks and things. And when Christ heals him, he wants to go with Christ. And Christ says, "No, go back and tell everybody what great things God has done for you." This is similar to me, and this is what in our lives we should be doing. So it's like, okay, Christ has come to earth. Yes, that's great. But you're not going to see that reflected in the way I live and the way I talk and the way I go about my life. You know, you're not, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a practical atheist. The Puritans used to call that practical atheism. You might not say you're an atheist, but the way you live, you live as though there is no God. You act, you go about your daily life as though God doesn't exist. You're just doing your own thing, going your own way. Right? But the reality is, is if this is true and Christ came and took away our sins, there's got to be a response to this. 
it should mode it should move us in some way right or in in, in every way it should move us um i want to read to close let's turn to psalm 142 i want to look at this psalm because this this to me encapsulates everything about this psalm uh psalm 142 it's a short psalm And this is uh, this is this is a prayer from David when he was in the cave and he's in trouble. And this is you know you read through this and if you're looking at it from the a certain perspective you're saying man I, who cannot relate with this? Who cannot relate with this? David says I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare my trouble before Him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, You knew my path. And the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Before Christ comes to the earth, who cares about your soul? Nobody cares about your soul apart from Christ. Nobody was doing anything about it. The, the, the Catholics aren't doing anything about it. They're, they're making it worse. All these false religions, they just make it worse, right? Who actually cares for your soul? The one who took on flesh. And not only does he take on flesh, but if you think about Christ's life, Think about this, and I didn't. I don't think I. I. I found this. I don't think I came up with this. I and I mean that sincerely. I found this from years ago in some notes. Um, but if you okay, so think about Christ. There was no room for him in the inn. He got a bit older. He grows. He gets older. Right. There's no room for him in the inn. And then what? Um, they try to kill him. Right after that, and then he gets a little older. And then his own family turns on him. They think he's crazy. He starts going out and preaching and telling people, you know, like doing things. And they're like, hey, Jesus, you got to get back over here, man. You've lost your mind. You're out of your mind. So he gets older. He goes to the temple. They don't, they don't want him in the temple anymore. That was the place where he wanted to hang when he was 12 years old, right? That's where he always, he wanted to be in his father's house. When he gets older, they're trying to say, you, you don't, you, you got to get out of here. This is too much. We can't handle this. Get out of here, right? And so eventually, of course, he goes to Jerusalem. But what happens? They kick him out of Jerusalem. We're not, you're not dignified enough to die in Jerusalem. We're going to, you, you have to be crucified outside of Jerusalem. So this whole life, this, this life, this entire life, why does he do this? Because he cares for your soul. Why does he suffer? Because he cares about your soul. That's why he does it. And then it goes on. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And I'm going to end with uh, what Spurgeon has to say on this passage right here. Um, and I, I believe this is Spurgeon. I found this also, but I, I, I'm pretty sure this is Spurgeon. It sounds like Spurgeon. I know it's not mine. He says, I, I say then to you, who would know the only peace and joy come to the babe of Bethlehem, Christ, right? You shepherd, simple hearted, you who toil for your daily bread, who work your hearts out. The, you know, the, you guys at work, man, like Willie, I know, you know, and, and Eric, you guys are out there toiling. It's, this is a beautiful gospel, right? Because it's not Christ's father was a carpenter. Christ was a carpenter, right? He's a, he's a man who works with his hands. He, he, he relates with, with, with everybody, every walk of life, right? The beauty of this is that it's not just for the academics. It's not just for the politicians, the, the wise men. In fact, it rarely is for them. That's what Spurgeon's saying. You who work your hearts out, come and adore the shepherd of men. 
You who've tasted the bottle, come and taste that the Lord is good. You who've lusted with your eyes this week, come look with your eyes on Jesus. Behold his face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim and you'll know joy. And you saintly women advanced in wisdom, come like Anna and bless the Lord. And you older gentlemen, come like Simeon and take this Savior in your arms and bless him. Give him your life. So that's that's what this is, right? It's good news of great joy for who? For who? For for all the people. Look what it's look um right here. Verse 10 it says, I bring you great news. Verse 10 it says, for all the people. Verse 11 says, Unto you is born, for unto you is born. Verse 14, with whom he is well pleased, people with whom he's well pleased. In other words, this is for us. Christ came for us. So it doesn't matter who you are in the eyes of God. If you're right with God today, he he cares so much about you that he died for you. He laid down his life for you. Now, if you're not right with God, if you're apart from Christ, he cares so much about you that He's willing to cast you into hell for all of eternity. He doesn't cast dogs or cats or bumblebees into hell. He casts humans into hell. Why? Because humans are made in God's image. They have more dignity, more value than dogs and cats and bumblebees. Right? Christ came for us. Christ came to die for his people. So so turn to Christ today. And, and like I said about Christmas, you know, I know there's a lot of cliches that we've all heard and there's a lot, there's a lot of glamour and stuff out there with Christmas, right? But it's very important that we see, cut through all of that and get to the heart of it and say, okay, first of all, why did Christ come? Secondly, now that he has come, has, has, has he died for me? You know, have I, have, have I given my life to this Christ? Do I see that in my life? Am I like the shepherds who are saying, man, this has happened. Let's go and tell everybody. Let's go do something about it. Let's act on that. That's what this is about. Otherwise, it's me. Otherwise, in fact, the more sermons you hear, the more damnation you're heaping on your own head. Right? So make this. If you're not right with the Lord, make today the day of salvation by God's grace. And if you are right with the Lord, let's rejoice and praise him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this, this time to intentionally meditate and think about the things of Christ and his his birth and, and ultimately his death for us. And we praise you, God, that you did care for our souls and you do care for our souls today. Not just at the moment you saved us, but that you continue caring for our souls. You continue to keep us preserving us, uh, keeping us saved, keeping us persevering in this walk of faith and this toil and this struggle. So, Lord, I pray for your people today. I pray that your hand would be upon them, strengthen them. You know their struggles, you know their toils, you know the difficulties, the temptations of life, the weariness of it. That even Jacob said, my life has been, my years have been few and, and, and evil. And certainly, Lord, there's, there's a, a sense of that in, in all of our lives, that, that we do have toils and things we struggle with every day, Lord. But we pray that you would help us, and we know you're helping us. So we praise you for that. Lord, we pray that you would convert people who are not saved, especially here, Lord, but but uh, also in our own families, at work, the people we work with, people around us, Lord. Help us to be like those shepherds who are going and proclaiming the great news.
that Christ has come to earth to die for sinners, Lord. Give us grace in that. Lord, bless those who are not here today. Keep them from evil. Give them grace in their travels. Bless them and help us now as we go forth into this warfare um, this week that you would give us much strength to fight the good fight of faith and to keep our eyes on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.